Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Shaping Design Podcast. Today, we have Clara on the podcast. Welcome, Clara. Hey, thank you for having me. So we wanted to have you on for to talk about a lot of stuff, but we were already talking a little bit before the pod started recording, and there's there's a lot to go into. I had a lot of thoughts that I think others really need to hear when talking about Framer stuff. Uh, but before we get into any of that, can you give us a breakdown about who you are, uh, you know, your history into design, uh, kind of like what got you into Framer, and then we'll go from there? Yeah, sure. So I started working actually with foreign languages. I worked in tourism before. That's how I started. Then I started working at a startup, Rome Research. That's when I started doing support, then turned into web developer uh, thanks to working at Rome. I got started getting my feet wet. And from front-end development, then that's how I got into design. And that's also how I then got into Framer, uh, also after being laid off from Rome. And I found this amazing world and community around Framer and around design. And I wanted to teach people how to effectively use Framer. And that's what I do mainly on Twitter. Right on. That was that was that was a really good intro. Oh my gosh, you got this nailed Thanks. down. You you've definitely done a podcast before. Tell me about that. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, um, you were talking to me before about being laid off, which sucks. Oh yeah. All of us have been laid off before. <laughs> Can you walk me through a little bit about how you found out and? You don't have to go into details about the company. It doesn't really matter. It's more about like your your personal reaction and, and, and how you bounce back from that. Yeah. So I was devastated personally because I had been working for, for the company for two years. And I started working there when it was like in the hype cycle. So everyone was talking about it and super active, really fun, small team, which also meant that I was working not just in support but like wearing lots of hats like a lot of startups do and I was earning well also because you know coming from Italy my previous job was like I was working super hard but I was not earning enough money to be honest but you know working for a startup in the U.S. definitely changes also your economic situation and getting off of that has been hard so and I also kind of expected it because it was also late layoff season for lots lots of tech companies but i also kind of didn't expect it uh so it was devastating but i i knew that i had to bounce back quickly and by quickly i mean have a new idea within a week <laughs> because i know that if i don't do that then i will maybe get depressed and then get stuck and then trying to figure things out i also at that time had moved to amsterdam from italy for about six months. So also finding, you know, finding a job in a foreign country that you don't know with a language that you're trying to learn and people also that you, that you don't know, right? It's, it's not easy. And I wanted to do my own stuff to work on my own thing, to be honest. And so I thought of, you know, first trying to code an app <laughs> for learning languages because that has always been my passion, but turns out it's not as easy as I thought. It was a little bit delusional, <laughs> but uh, then I found I loved front-end development and got really interested in design, and that's how I found Framer. And so I thought, you know, I can spend at least maybe a year just 
trying to go super in depth with framer stuff. And I also saw an opportunity there on Twitter to create an audience. So that is what I'm doing. And I found lots of other designers like you guys that I can collaborate with and learn from. So I found that as great opportunity. That's awesome to hear. And thank you for being so honest about uh, your, your kind of experiences there. <laughs> uh, Pascal, do you want to jump in before I ask more questions? Yeah, it's uh, how, for, from your perspective, how easy has Framer been to learn? Like, I mean, we've all, like, you've, you've learned numerous, you know, design languages or codes and whatnot. How easy is it for you in your and perspective? And actually, I'll add on to that question as well. Why Framer? So coming from web development, Framer makes the most sense in a way, along with Webflow, because, but I, I don't, I've never really touched Webflow, to be honest, but I found, well, I found Framer, first of all, through my boyfriend who started talking to me about it when I was coding stuff. He's like, hey, you can just make a website, just design it and just publish it and you're saving a lot of time. So I got interested, but coming from web development, you always feel like these tools are kind of like dumb, <laughs> quote unquote, because you're like, yeah, but I want to customize this and I want to customize that and I want to add this. And at the beginning, I didn't really understand why people would use Framer, but also I come from web development for web apps, not just for websites. So for me, it was kind of like, okay, this website thing, <laughs> you know, but uh yeah, it, it made a lot of sense because I, first of all, I could see how certain uh, front-end frameworks were being applied into design, like the idea of Flexbox, for example, being in stacks or grids, so I could easily map it one-on-one, -on -one, so it was pretty easy for me to learn. And the also the possibility that I can add React code to make custom components, I found that really good. As someone who really likes to code personally, I'm like, yeah, I can create all sorts of custom stuff and see it immediately on a website, get quick feedback loops. I think that is important. So for me, it has been easy in that sense, like understanding kind of like the logic behind how Framer works because it's a lot like developing a website. But the harder part for me coming from someone who didn't go to design school or like is completely self-taught, of course, is understanding the design aspects of using Framer, mm -hmm. not much the development aspects. Yeah, I, I think um, using these tools, and I think what Framer did really well, it's like this WYSIWYG tool that even if you're like a non-experienced designer can use, if you're in advance, you can start using code or whatnot. But even on the flip side, if you're a developer, you can use it to design because it's easy and intuitive. Like there are grids, there are boxes, you can drag components in and just use the basic foundations there and improve as you go. But I think they did this amazing job at really simplifying what is there. And then the more experienced you are, like you who can code and you can do React, you can plug it in. So they have this combination of easy to use Anybody can use it, but then for the advanced users, they can go in and really customize the heck out of it to make it look like it's not coming from Framer, that it's coming from like, this was fully full blown, fully designed and developed by like an external agency, yet alone, it's by one person doing all this in his, in his bedroom, like doing Framer. So I think they've done a fantastic job at doing that. 
Yeah, and also they they make it super smooth. Like it's just easy to go from not just like yeah. animations. Well, I'm talking about like actually the UX of going from designing something in Figma, then pulling it into Framer, modifying it, moving it around, trying to make it good, responsive, whatever, and then publishing it right from there. It's such a smooth process. I was able to actually do one of the companies I was working for. They asked me to port their Webflow website to Framer because mm. they said if you're good with Framer and not Webflow, then just do it. I did it within a day. And that's when I realized, oh, wow, this is actually really good. I did a terrible job. Don't get me wrong. Like, it was a terrible job, and I regret it. But like, I actually, actually don't regret it. I, I regret the, the quality that I, I, I published. I don't regret actually moving to Framer because I know now I can redo it. And since Pascal and I have been uh, watching you on Twitter and many others, we've been learning a lot, and we've been toying around with it as well to be able to get better at using the tool, not just design, right? You know, Pascal and I know a lot about design systems. We know about how to work with developers. We know how to like lead, you know, uh, pattern groups and even just lead product teams. But getting to learn the tool, I think has been the hardest part, even though it's not hard, it's still, there's still always going to be a challenge there. So um, I want to talk to you about a couple of other things regarding challenges. Us three are not the only ones on Twitter doing framer stuff, <laughs> right? There's yep. a bunch of others who have framer courses coming out that have announced that they're already uh, accepting pre-sales uh, and some that are like signing up, uh, have you sign up for, for their course dropping soon. And, you know, Pascal and I are also uh, going to be dropping a really great resource for design systems with framer and helping to guide designers on the actual essence of the principles of design while they're implementing UI. Can you talk about a little bit about your challenges in trying to create a unique perspective from education on Framer? Yeah. So for me, it was always about like sharing what I know and what I'm learning. Like I didn't put that much thought into it of like having a unique angle or for me, it's when you're starting out, you just need to start out. And for me, what is important on Twitter, more than having a unique angle or having a lot of experience, is just writing well in a way that people can, you know, get stay focused in what you're writing. So I think if you're going to start out, you know, making stuff on Twitter about framer or about design or about, you know, coding, any sort of like skill is that for me, it's really important to have good writing because there's a lot of people out there writing super interesting stuff, but in an extremely dry way or uninterested way that is like, yeah, it's interesting, but I'm not, you know, hooked onto it. And I don't see like someone's personality because they're trying to just convey stuff, but maybe they're using, I don't know, chat GPT or whatever to write in a very specific way, but it's not their own way. I think personality, if, if you're true to yourself when you're writing or when you're making content, it will always show. Like your personality is, is you, you know? Like you, you can't really explain it, but if you just are yourself, then eventually it will show. And in terms of unique perspective, like my unique perspective is that I'm not a designer by trade. Like I'm self-taught, right? So my unique perspective on Framer is that for 
I, my idea is that Framer is a tool that can be used by people who are not designers mm -hmm. and are not coders. Like it can be learned and people can make really cool stuff. So that's kind of my unique angle of not trying to make tutorials about the craziest stuff that like the, the dribble stuff that's never going to work in a <laughs> real life scenario. Oh, don't, right? don't tell it's Pascal like, that. He's going to go off on like a rocket now. <laughs> exactly. Like for me, it's like, how can I share a way, for example, to make a button that is interesting and, and functional quickly in Framer? It's not the most interesting button, it's not the most flashy button, but it works and it can look good in a specific type of design. Like the super out there flashy stuff is not for me in terms of personality and in terms of what I think is, is good to learn, but you know, to each their own, right? But it's, it's important that you, you think about what you like as a designer and, and sharing that to other people. Because if you like it, there's probably a chance that other people will like it too. And if you are yourself, people will see it and people will start, start liking you as, you as a person. And that's how you build a personal brand. And that's how then you can sell products that people will buy because they trust you as a person. I love that. And I actually will touch on that too, because I think Pascal and I started off this venture together trying to, you know, bounce back and start educating other designers on how to be better at their craft, how to get better at the craft, how to be better designers as a whole. And we hid behind this brand called Learn Primitives, which I think has a little bit hindered us in the beginning because people didn't really see who we were. They were it was kind of like we're trying to build an umbrella of different things and thinking too far into the future. And we weren't really thinking about building the trust uh, on an individual level uh, with our own personalities. We're doing it with the company kind of brand. So I think that you're right. If you don't have that trust, how can anyone really find you? How do they know who you are? How do they uh, believe in you at, at that point, right? How do you build that uh, empathy with them if you're hiding behind a company? Like very few can do that. Um, and I know some people in the framer space actually are kind of branding themselves as like uh, some sort of product and they're tweeting out and they're kind of moving all through that. But I think there's like positives and negatives to this. The positive is you brand yourself as one thing and then every, anyone will follow you for that thing. They know exactly who you are and you have an audience that kind of follows you whatever venture you go to next. When you do it through a company or like a brand itself, not your name, you can sell that brand later on if you don't want it, but the audience won't follow you necessarily if you're not really in the face, if you're just kind of like hiding behind the name, which I think is okay for a lot of people um, if that's what they want to do, either remain anonymous and stuff. But I think I would recommend your path, at least now, to build that audience from that kind of personal touch, that personal, uh, 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 I guess, relationship that you can build with your face with your name that you can't with the company name yeah and to touch on that um you can always pivot you know in a personal brand it is possible because at some point people will start following you because they like you as a person and not necessarily for the stuff that you share i mean of course in my case i share framer stuff so most of the people who follow me <laughs> follow me for framer stuff right yeah but there have been, for example, lots of YouTubers have started out, you know, with one niche and then they've 
after years of working on their personal brand have pivoted to either something adjacent to what they were doing or something different and people still followed them because they they liked the person mm -hmm. with companies i've seen for example a lot of cases where people who worked at a successful company who was like big on twitter or whatever they got a lot of followers because they worked at brand x and then when they got laid off suddenly no one cared about that anymore right mm -hmm. so it's it's hard to pick yourself up from there and but if you if you have the the courage to put yourself out there because it takes courage i think then yes i would recommend going for a personal brand and not worry too much about niching down specifically at the beginning just try to experiment with stuff and then figure out what it is you want to spend your time on that also attracts people of course yeah and and i think what's important too is that you know finding your unique tone of voice on how you express yourself because a lot of people are buying courses on how to write and then imitating what like the big accounts are doing but then they just regurgitate exactly word for word what they're saying and you can tell like on twitter you can tell who's using the same templates they're using the exact same words they just change one word and they, they, that's okay if if that's how they start that's okay and that, that's not a problem but I think one more important thing, and like I, I love your perspective on this, is especially in the framer space, everybody's going after framer. Everybody's trying to make courses. Everybody's trying to educate everybody. Everybody's a you know framer master, and good for it. It just shows that there's value behind framer. How do you keep moving forward without being discouraged by what everybody else is doing? Because the people that make the flashy buttons, we're not, I'm not going to lie. They're the ones that get the most likes, even though that button is never going to see the light of day in any product. Yet they get the most likes, they get the most followers, they get the most everything. They built momentum off of that flashy button. How do you not pay attention, not, not pay attention to them, but how do you keep moving forward and stick to your plan? It's a really good question because we as humans are always trying to compare ourselves to others. Like it's, it's natural. It's people are like, mm -hmm. don't compare yourself to others, but it's, it's everyone does. We yeah. always do. Right. So it's, it's impossible. That's why I say it takes courage to put yourself out there because it can take a toll on your mental health. For example, I used to have a YouTube channel like two years, two and a half years ago before I started working at a startup and I, at some point, started getting a lot of negative comments, a lot of hate, and that made me stop with YouTube and not try it again, right? And it took, it took courage to start on Twitter and say, okay, let me try this personal brand thing because it, it does take a toll on your mental health. And comparing yourself to others also takes a toll on your mental health and seeing the, the, the dribble stuff, the impossible stuff that has like 4,000 likes and you post something that you think is more valuable but doesn't hit as hard, right? It, it, it can be hard. But what I always tell myself when I, I notice that switch going on in my brain of the comparison stuff is it's a long-term game. So if someone posts a fleshy button once that gets 4,000 likes... But then one year later, they're not posting anymore. It's not relevant anymore, the fleshy button that got 4,000 likes because it's a one-off thing, right? 
So it's the it's all about consistency and it's all about the long-term game. That's always what I tell myself because if I can make content in a way that is sustainable to me, that is doesn't take a toll on my mental health and I can keep doing it, then eventually I will get to a point where I have a, a established brand mm-hmm. and I have my own products and I don't care whether another account is making a course or whatever. Also, yeah. because I have my own perspective, like you can make a framework course, but you can make a framework course for solopreneurs who make an app and need to get a landing page. That is a very specific niche, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just about comparing yourself to other people who are making content. It's also about being strategic about the content that you're making that can appeal to a specific subset of people that is not necessarily everyone. I don't think you should make content for everybody because then you make content for nobody. So it's, yeah, it, it's also about that. It's interesting because it, it's almost as the way I kind of see it is you can have the people that do uh, superficial, I'm going to say superficial, not in a negative way, but superficial in a way that they only at the top, they get a lot of hit at the beginning, but the people that go deep with knowledge and that's a, that like, that's a long-term goal and it takes longer to ramp up, but I get a feeling that the people that, you know, are, are going to latch on to you are in there for the long term. They're going to learn, they're going to learn valuable skills that are transferable to different design methods and whatnot, besides just designing that very cool button animation. Okay, what's that? The that very cool animation card. What's that? The very cool loaders. I mean, they're all cool, but they're still at the end of the day, very valuable, but still superficial in a way that like there was more to the button. There's the app. There's like the foundation. There's the topography. There's hierarchy in your design is how do you, what's the message that you get at the top? Because majority of the websites fail to complete that first hook at the so people just move on. Those are things that I feel, you know, don't get a lot of likes now, but are so important. So I appreciate that, you know, you're in there with for that long-term goal, that vision of establishing something and helping like your idea of how do you get people to solopreneurs to design a very valuable landing page? Because we're not going to face it right now. Everybody's designing and I keep, tweeting about it, but everybody's designing a portfolio for designers. I mean, one, we're all designers. We should be able to design a portfolio page. Do we need any more portfolio pages? I don't think so. But ah, we still see portfolio pages every friggin' day being posted up. Can we stop and just design something valuable? Like, can we help solopreneurs? Can we help a SaaS company? Or it's like, it's like all, all everyone's in the exact same SaaS template where it's like the title with a little button and then the picture of like, the the ui of that app right below it the same thing every and then just yeah. change the background color that's all they're doing there's an untapped market that nobody's going after it's like the businesses like imagine if you transition them into framer you set them up and you help them they're set they can go and make modifications by themselves they don't need to hire mm-hmm. or i mean there's so many things we can do instead of designing another portfolio template that we don't need it's cool they really look nice. People are doing fantastic jobs on it. But I don't think we need to help designers at this point. We need to help businesses get onto the web. We need to help businesses improve 
their websites and yeah, things. So I, th I think like what you're trying to say is the end user should not be the the end either either the, the primary or secondary end user should not be designers. They they are the ones who are going to be using the tool, but the tool should be used to another means. It should be used to help the business. It should not be used to build a portfolio site like all these other failed companies in the past and successful companies in the past have already done like dunked or cargo, whatever you call yes. it, or whatever. Like there's so many companies that have already done that. Like designers are not probably going to be the biggest moneymaker. We should be transitioning a lot of the uh, target audience of how we help people with Framer to, like you said before, I think businesses, like, because those are the ones that are drive a lot more money, right? Those are the ones that are going to We say that, but yet, the, like, the biggest templates that are being sold are portfolios. I think well, it's also because yeah. it's it's mainly because also the, the Framer is not like a mainstream tool yet in that sense. Yes. Like, for example, Webflow templates that are honestly look horrific, they make a lot of money, right? Why? Because there is a hot, like a bigger market in Webflow. Framer right now is used mainly by designers. And so that's how that's why I feel that the designer portfolios, right, make more money. Even though it doesn't make sense, like you said, because as a designer, would you want a, a cookie cutter portfolio to express what you're doing? Like it doesn't make sense, right? Because you would want something unique because it's your portfolio. But everyone's using these cookie cutter designs. And that's also it also affects the price of these templates in a negative way because people were complaining, oh, these amazingly designed framer templates, they are like 30 bucks. And this Webflow template for a restaurant is like 150 and looks five times more horrible. But it's the market, right? So yeah. if we're if we keep making stuff for designers, it will not get big. And we no. cannot expect to earn as much as we would making stuff for actual companies that, that need yeah. websites. And it, I think you touched on it is like Webflow is known or a bit like the audience is bigger. So that's why they, they've expanded into out, outer market. So I would highly encourage anybody playing with Framer to stop building a portfolio and design other templates for restaurants, for a SaaS company. For anything, you you can design a portfolio if you want, but I mean, at one point, like we have, we've seen enough, you can figure out what to build. Build something for somebody else that's going to drive value, and then you can reskin towards five different companies. And it, like, it's not like a portfolio where once you've seen a portfolio, you evaluate a portfolio, even a, like a PDF portfolio or like a site, they all look alike. Like everybody's using the same template, the same, and we're turning this into the same thing in Framer where. It's doing the same thing. The images, the rounded corners, the bento box style. And I mean, we all end up looking alike. Yeah. Like get your portfolio done, move on, build something valuable, right? Uh, get what you need done so you can market yourself. And then once you market yourself, you can then help actual businesses make money and like help yes. other products succeed and, and, and whatever. Um, and right now, uh, I'm going to Webflow, uh, Framer doesn't, allow you to make web apps you can do like you can add like some hacky ways to mm. to to get subscriptions going and like you know a member site but it's not yet ready or readied to build web apps so you're originally in the space of uh web apps and framer is more of a marketing kind of like a landing page blog ish 
tool. It doesn't have the logic that a web app does. I think we all agree Framer will move in that direction eventually. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And I've already not got confirmation. There's no confirmation about it, but it's just not on the roadmap yet. Um, so going back to your web app experience, what kind of things were you building before? Were you also doing like the backend stuff or just the front end? So I also did backend. So I started with front end. Then I wanted to make, like, I wanted to be a solopreneur pretty much. So I wanted to make my backend, but I was very specific on like the languages that I wanted to use because I used ClojureScript, which is like a more niche language within the web developers, like functional programming, all that fancy stuff that <laughs> programmers really like to talk about. But for me, ClojureScript honestly is the most fun I've ever had programming with something. But unless you're a super experienced backend developer, it's kind of hard to make full like front and backend web apps using ClojureScript because if you want to use your backend with Clojure, I'm not going to get too technical, but you got to be pretty experienced. You can use serverless stuff, but to me, serverless is useless when you want to make an actual app that people will use. Because like Firebase type of things, they get super expensive and they get way more expensive than what you would do if you made your actual backend. So I got in all of these like challenges when I was trying to make my own web app because I, I didn't want to make toy apps. You know, I wanted to make something that people used. And I figured I either get a backend developer who's experienced to work with me, but you know, I, I didn't want to go that route. So I, I kind of stopped making uh, full stack apps and tried to say, OK, I'm going to just really learn front end development really well and then design as well. And then maybe once a nice no code back end <laughs> will come up that's actually usable, <laughs> then maybe I will try again because it's it's a lot of work. Like I, I respect solopreneurs so much who make their own backends and frontends. It's like it's it's amazing work because to me, the backend, like figuring out all the logic of everything and how everything is supposed to work and making it in a way that's scalable, mm -hmm. the more users you get is a nightmare. <laughs> and that's how it felt to me. <laughs> so, yeah. I think uh, Drew Wilson, a uh, big fan of Drew Wilson, maybe we'll have him on the pod. He's a developer designer guy as well. He is announcing his own next startup initiative thing where I think it's like a, a back-end WYSIWYG tool, but it also uses AI. So you can set up a back... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't even know if I'm, I'm speaking the right, right, about the right thing. But he announced like a little landing page, um, which is kind of cool. I'm like, oh, this might be kind of cool to recreate in Framer. But it... Is allow it allows you to build a backend without knowing how to code the backend. Just spin it up real quick. It's very simple stuff, and then you can hook it up to whatever I guess front end you, you have. Uh, not really much code involved, and then also I think AI is used to help clean up some of the stuff there. But uh, I think that I, I love seeing all these front end tools come about. I think it's time, like Drew Wilson's doing, to to have a backend tool for no code. Uh, you know, with people using Airtable and Google Sheets and and Microsoft Excel as Backend, which is not ideal to be honest, it's not the best, but 
you need some way of seeing the data. And that, those are the best. I mean, because backend mm -hmm. databases, database is like a table, essentially. It comes in the form of tables uh, or it's a combination of many tables. So that's a great way to view it, but it's not a great way to manage it. Um, okay, so what what have you built recently with Framer that you're really proud of? So right now I've been focusing all my time on be um, making like components, not necessarily like full blown websites. So now I'm actually in the I'm collaborating with a more experienced designer, way more experienced than me, and we're making we're, we just started making Framer templates together. So hopefully we will launch one in the next few weeks and then we'll just keep on making more. So that's that's kind of like my first full-blown framework project because I was so focused into the educational aspect mm -hmm. that I was not really making websites by myself. I was just making components and sharing them. So for now, I'm focusing on framework templates and then hopefully in the future, I will have, we, we will also have like our own Framer website that will host these templates. And then after that, hopefully have a design uh, studio that is focused on Framer that makes websites for actual clients and, and companies that need the Nicole website. If you're gonna have this agency that then builds websites for others, how are you going to attract customers or clients to help fund your endeavor here how, how are they going to pay you how do you find them to pay you so it's it's a great question because i'm not going to do it myself <laughs> i'm going to partner up with my boyfriend who is actually uh, has experience in sales mm. and so and he is dutch and we're in amsterdam so he is going to be the one focusing on getting clients pretty much which is great because I can focus on, you know, the development side of things and the art direction. And he focuses more on the sales aspect also, and also the copywriting, because mm -hmm. my idea is to have like an agency where we do both the copywriting and the website. So you don't need to hire a copywriter, for example. So that is exactly why I wanted to make this thing, because we have different strengths, but combined I think we can we can do really really well with that. So he's gonna be the one that takes care of that. But I I'm also probably gonna be using my personal brand, especially on Twitter, to you know share about the work that we will be doing. So hopefully that will also generate uh, some clients too. So we're gonna do a little bit of both. Yeah. Right. No, but I like the idea of you know expanding that skill and the agency side and things. I think it's, we're going to start to see a lot of, and a lot of big names already talked about this, but a lot of people transitioning into creator mode and like developer mode. And like even Matt, Matt Gray was saying like, you know, when like startup and then you get at the chasm thing, we're kind of ramping up. We're not at the top yet. There's still a lot of room for creators to come on. And, but the future is going to belong to everybody. That's like the creator aspect of things where, People create, they see an opportunity, they create, they help others, they create. And I think the more people realize there's a gap or an opportunity there, the more we're going to start shifting towards it. And even from like small agency or because I, I think you also fall into like the human aspect of it. Like a smaller agency feels a bit more human. Like you have that human connection. You have that thing that big agencies don't because big agencies, it's about the money. It, 
small agencies about the money, but you don't have that same human touch. You don't have that same little personal connection that you're making for. So I, I see a lot of transitioning people towards that space for numerous reasons, because like we're pivoting times, we're adjusting AI is coming into the mix, but AI is cool, but a lot of people don't want AI. So they're going to want people that understand AI, but that human aspect to it. So I think all those creator elements and, and humans, I think there's going to be a lot of value in it. So I just wanted to add to everything you said with just like that little note, but I appreciate that, you know, you're seeing that, op- that opportunity and you're going for it. You, you kind of like your head's down, you're, you're driving for it, regardless of what others are doing, you're sticking true to your path. Yeah, it's it's also about, like what you said, the human touch, right? And it's it ties in with design as well, because with all the AI stuff that's coming out, like and all the, the templatizing of design mm-hmm. that we see with Framer and with Webflow, things are starting to look more cookie cutter-like type of things. And a lot of people, when they want their own brand, they want something personal. They want something unique, right? And with AI, what's great about it is that it speeds up your workflow and you can do like the boring repetitive tasks with it. Mm-hmm. But then what you're left and what your competitive advantage is, is your own taste. Like taste is something that you can, like, I don't think you can yet train <laughs> a model to, to, to have your taste that is unique to you. So adding that to the mix, not just like not going against AI, but using it to your own advantage. Mm-hmm. You can go against it if you don't like it. You, you do you, right? But yep. as, a, as a creative person, then your competitive advantage becomes your style and it becomes your taste. And if you're able to use it along with these tools, I think you will you will get lots of work done at a good pace so that you can yeah. help more people eventually. And I, I think like on taste, I know Mitch, you know, did the a solo episode on on that. And, you know, to touch on that, like taste is like it's taste. It's like we can look at a piece of art and agree or disagree that I like it. Mitch may not like it. And that's OK. That Like to some degree, there's taste. But I think what's going to be required, even with these framer templates is like taste is one thing but foundation i see and i like i I, slack uh, mitch and i were talking about a new template that was posted on framer i'm not going to comment i don't want to bash negatively that person but nothing was aligned there was no grid like there were things that were should have been aligned were totally not aligned no hierarchy no white space no i mean it's okay to produce templates but and have taste because it looked good, but the foundations behind, like foundations are always going to drive design. Like I don't like taste is one thing, but foundations are still very important. They're rules. They're out how you guide your user's eye through a page. And I think those are beyond like taste is one thing. Foundations are important. Even if we use WYSIWYG tools or Framer or Webflow, we need to rely on foundations. We seem to be forgetting all these aspects of, oh, I can quickly design a website. Like, I mean, we're forgetting a lot of the basis of design. Even if AI is there, we still need to go back in and make some adjustments to what we're doing. Yeah, and I think to add on to that, uh, taste is now an advantage. If you have it, you have more of an advantage over your, I guess, uh, the rest of the workforce, the rest of the competitors in that space, other designers. And those who don't have it, they're kind of behind. Because if you if you can't develop your taste, you can never 
aspire to design something with a selective personality to it. You're always mm-hmm. stuck trying to copy somebody else's work that is really good, but you can't pull it quite off. You can't pull it off like quite like them because your taste is subpar to theirs. And you're right, like AI cannot currently develop its own taste, and there's no taste trained AI. Maybe in the future there will be. Yeah, but not yet. But for for what I I would suggest, you know, in, in the last episode I talk about taste. That's the, the whole episode. Uh, you know, to to separate yourself from AI and the competition, you need to have your own taste. But how do you? I already answered this in the last podcast. But how do you personally, Clara? How do you develop your own taste? That's a that's a great question. I think that taste does not come necessarily from looking at websites. If you're a web designer, I think it comes from first of all, you need to like like creative work, you know, because you need to you need to want to look at nice things. And nice things are not just nice websites, right? So for me, it's for example, I love to draw, so I love illustrations. And I, I love looking at really cool illustrations and I'm like, ah, this is the style I like. Like I spent so many hours on Pinterest just collecting things that I like, which could be typography. It could be an illustration. It could be a, a painting. It could be an object. It could be anything. It could be a plant, whatever. But it it I think it all, like all the stuff that you like, you need to be, you need to have an analytic eye to kind of use that to develop your own taste. So when I collect something, I'm always like, why do I like this? And so I take always a little time to kind of write down, oh, I like this because this color is like that and it matches well with this other color, right? And I build a library, kind of a swipe file, but it's like a swipe file with a little bit of steroids in it. (laughs) So it's like a swipe file with notes that explain why I like Mm. something and from there, then when I need to create something, I know, for example, okay, this is the style I want to go for. And I have these many things saved that kind of match that style. What is it that I liked? And then I extra- extract that and then try to put it together in a way that is different. And so that is, I think, how you develop taste. I don't agree with the whole copying websites stuff to develop taste because that's how you learn design. Like you learn oh, this spacing with that spacing makes it so that there's more white space and it gives a more airy feeling to the website or whatever, or this typography that is super big adds a lot of contrast or whatever. That is design aspects. But taste is more about understanding why you like something and then trying to extract that, take it out of context and try to make something new with it. I think that's how, at least how I develop my taste. Do you see... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Mitch. Do you do you see taste as something that's only subjective and like it's only your personal decision making? Or is it something that there is like Immanuel Kant claims there's an underlying kind of connection uh that, that has a universal truth to it? Uh I think it's a little bit of both. Okay. Like because I like something, right? And a lot of times something that I like is not just me that likes it, right? A lot of more people like it. It's like with art that there is like this thing of like, I'm, I, Leonardo da Vinci makes this painting and then everybody likes it. It's like, okay, there must be something universal in it. Otherwise, why does everybody like it? 
But then there's a, a social aspect also, which is it's not that it's universally beautiful. It's also that a lot of people in society have accepted that this thing is beautiful. So you find it beautiful. So there, there's, there's also a, a social aspect to it. But for example, I really, I don't know, really like pastel colors, right? It's not just me that loves pastel colors, but I, I grew up watching stuff that had pastel colors. So it, it kind of got an influence in me, right? So that there is a universal aspect, but then there is a social aspect. And then there is like a third aspect, which is uh, how often do you see that same thing? Because the more often you see it, the, the more things you will notice and probably the more you will, you will like it just because it's in your life all the time. Like me with pastel colors, for example. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, I think taste also improves over time. Like the more you consume, the more you get good at it. It's like art or wine, right? I think when you start drinking wine, you're not starting off with like a hundred dollar Brunello bottle of wine because you don't, don't understand it. You're starting with something cheap. The more you consume it, the more you understand aroma, smell, and like you improve. I think it's the same in design. I think the more you, when you start, you have a certain taste. And I think it's, I would say like the more you consume, the better you get at identifying things and your taste evolves over time. It, I, I'm Your taste is not going to be the same when you start designing and when you end your career. Yeah. And it, it evolves over time and you can, the, the more analytic you are with the, what you consume, because you can just blindly consume stuff, right? It's like someone who watches YouTube video about a certain skill and they just watch YouTube videos and then they don't do anything about it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you've consumed a lot of content, but that, that didn't necessarily make you better. So yeah. there there is a practical component to it. Like you consume stuff, you consume yeah. art, you consume design, but then you always have this like analytical component in it where you think, okay, why do I like this? What makes me like it? And this is how artists also develop their own taste. Like it's not just designers. I've seen lots of illustrators and, and painters who do that, go to museums, look at stuff, see, okay, I like this because the light hits this in a very specific way. It's not just going to the museum just for the sake of going to the museum and look at something nice. So it, it is true that it, it gets better over time the more you consume but you can make it even quicker if you think actively about what you're consuming and and why you think looks good i love that answer but i will say that i feel smarter in my head when i watch youtube videos okay so i want to move on to our i think final question you've been talking a lot about how uh subconsciously you've been talking a lot about how you have been personally shaping the design world uh, through a lot of your education stuff, through the framework stuff coming up, uh, through building web apps and interactions. How has the design world shaped you? It made me more conscious about what I'm consuming, if that makes sense. Like, I'm using a website. And then suddenly I'm not paying really attention to what I'm doing in the website. I'm like, oh, I like this thing or, you know, like this is how it, it changed me. But then also with the things that I'm using, I'm, I'm more inclined to, for example, use things that are not just functional. They are functional. They solve a problem, but they do it in a way that I like. Before, I wouldn't really pay attention to, you know, I don't know, pair of scissors. It's like, okay, it cuts paper. Nice. Great. 
they look horrific, but they cut paper. Now, if I would go for a pair of scissors, I would go for a pair of scissors that cuts paper, but does it more in a way that's efficient, in a way that makes it makes the act of cutting paper more pleasurable. And I think that's what design does to people, how it influences them. It makes them think of things not just as functional, but like, how can it solve a problem? How can it make it pleasurable for you to, to use something? So I think that's how it shaped me. It's an amazing answer. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it was a pleasure.